The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The biggest catastrophe for the DOJ would be if Fisher is overruled or reversed and Judge Katsas's ruling or Judge Nichols' ruling, that was the original ruling, is adopted. The whole subsection almost vanishes. It becomes just a slightly broader version of the first subsection which is about evidence destruction, evidence spoliation, evidence uh, fooling around with evidence, tampering. And so in that case, uh, at least 317 cases, uh, January 6th cases, probably you, you have to drop that count. I'm Matt Gluck, Research Fellow at Lawfare, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, October 26th, 2023. The D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals last week faintly endorsed the Justice Department's reading of a critical felony charge, corrupt obstruction of an official proceeding, which the department has relied on to prosecute at least 317 individuals for their alleged roles in the January 6th Capitol riot. In the case United States versus Thomas Robertson, the court affirmed the Justice Department's conception of the definition of corruptly, as stated in the charge. Robertson followed another D.C. Circuit ruling in April, United States versus Fisher, which upheld the charge even more fragilely. Lawfare senior editor Roger Parloff detailed the court's Robertson decision on Lawfare. I sat down with Parloff to discuss Robertson, Fisher, and what it would mean for the Justice Department if its interpretation of the corrupt obstruction statute is ultimately rejected. It's the Lawfare podcast, October 26th, Roger Parloff on a potential problem for the Justice Department's January 6th prosecutions. Roger, I enjoyed reading your characteristically thorough and clear piece about the D.C. Circuit's consequential ruling last week. To get started, could you describe what the court ruled last week? Sure, uh, and thank you for that. Last week was the ruling in uh, of the D.C. Circuit, U.S. Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit in United States versus Robertson, and it was the second uh, in uh, a couple important rulings having to do with the, one of the key felony charges in the January 6th cases, which is called corrupt obstruction of an official proceeding. It's at 18 U.S.C. 1512 uh, C2. And it's been charged in uh, at least 317 
of the January 6th cases against uh, rioters. And it's also uh, been charged uh, in the indictment against Trump in Washington, D.C. In fact, in a sense, it, it composes two of the four charges against Trump in that case. One is 1512C2, and one is uh, conspiracy equivalent 1512K. That section has its own conspiracy section rather than relying on a lot of, often when you charge conspiracy, you use 18 USC 371 plus whatever substantive statute. But but in any event, uh, it's a crucial, crucial charge for these reasons. So these cases are very important. And uh, this was a two to one ruling. It's the second in a series. Back in April, the court decided a case called USA versus Fisher. And more or less, you can describe the two rulings as addressing different challenges to the use of that law by the Department of Justice in all of these cases. And uh, one challenge, which was the challenge in Fisher, has to do with what's called the, what lawyers would call the actus reus, meaning what's the conduct that is covered by this statute. And that was Fisher. And this one is what's called, addresses what's called the mens rea, which is the state of mind. What sort of state of mind do you have to have? What sort of intent do you have to have to be convicted of this offense? So that's more or less how it divides. And last week was United States versus Robertson. And uh, although it should be uh, divisible in that way, it, it isn't really completely because of the way this played out, the cases are intertwined. And, and uh, uh, although the government won both cases, both, both opinions are split. Uh, right now, Fisher, uh, the defendants are seeking Supreme Court review. And of course, uh, since Robertson just came down, it's not as far along, but we assume the, the Robertson will be seeking some sort of review. We don't know uh, exactly what his next step will be. Okay, thank you for that detailed summary. So let's start with Fisher. So there were three opinions in Fisher. Uh, One was the leading opinion. What did that opinion say? So Fisher, and this is the one that involves what what I'm calling actus reus. First, let's—I guess I I need to really explain the statute. The statute is whoever corruptly. And then there are two provisions. And subsection one uh, discusses evidence tampering. So whoever corruptly alters, destroys, mutilates, or conceals a record, document, or other object, blah, 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 for use in an official proceeding. Section two is broader. So if you skip over section one, it says it would say whoever corruptly skip over section one two otherwise obstructs, influences or impedes an official proceeding. And then it goes on to say shall be fined uh, or uh, imprisoned not more than 20 years or both. So it's a big felony, potentially 20 years. So basically, the government has been using this statute and, and reading it very broadly as meaning, in effect, whoever corruptly 
obstructs, influences, or impedes an official proceeding. And that seems to describe very well several hundred of uh, the rioters uh, on January 6th. Uh, But what happened in March of 2022 is uh, Judge Carl Nichols um, threw out this charge, uh, originally in the case of a defendant named Garrett Miller and, and later in the two other cases, Joseph Fisher and Edward Lang. And he said, You're reading, the D- Justice Department is reading it wrong. And you, it's, it's omitting that word otherwise in the subsection two. And that otherwise has to have meaning. And the way he reads it is it cabins that everything in that second section that sounded so broad. And so as he read it, it, it only catches those obstructive acts that are akin to those described in the first section, which were all about evidence tampering, altering, destroying, mutilating a document. And so if you read it that slowly, none of these January, or virtually none of these January 6th defendants uh, are covered because they weren't obstructing a proceeding by means of evidence tampering. They were obstructing it through violence and rioting and, and, and things like that. And that was an unusual ruling. Until then, or, or I, don't, I don't know exactly the number at that point. I mean, as of right now, at least 15 other judges on the district court in Washington, D.C., have gone the other way, and they thought the Justice Department interpretation was the obvious one. And, and incidentally, that was bipartisan. Uh, so lots of, uh, you know, Republican appointees, Democratic appointees. But Judge Nichols disagreed. And so that went up. And the court was very, very split. And it was also a panel that had Judge Florence Pan, who was appointed by Biden, and then two judges who were appointed by Trump. Gregory Katzis and Justin Walker. And the way they split was that Judge Pan said basically that DOJ had it exactly right. It, you read it, it's, it's sort of its plain meaning. Uh, Judge Katzis came out very close to the way Judge Nichols had, not exactly, but in essence, he read it the same way, he said, you've got to read that word otherwise as having meaning and and so it, 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 it renders subsection two much narrower. It only catches evidence tampering. So his ruling would, you know, wipe out all of those cases. And then Judge Justin Walker's ruling was very, very unusual. And he said, you know, part of what Judge Katzis said speaks to me, you know, I, I agree that it's very, the DOJ reading is very, very broad. And it's so broad that it might be unconstitutionally vague. On the other hand, I think that if we look at that corruptly element, which really wasn't at issue in that case, but if we look at that, that might rein in the statute and make it constitutional. Now, bearing in mind that Judge Nichols hadn't even reached the issue of what corruptly meant because he didn't think it was necessary. But Judge Walker felt, no, this is crucial. And not only is it crucial to reining in the statute, but it has to, in my view, it has to be uh, 
interpreted in a particular way in order to render the statute constitutional. And so you have to, corruptly has to mean something that, frankly, uh, almost, well, uh, no judge in, in the district court was currently charging. It has to mean that you do something with an intent to procure an unlawful benefit, either for himself or for some other person. And some people call this the expectation of benefit test or unlawful benefit test. And, and, and so he says, so I will vote with Judge Pan, the Biden appointee, to uphold and revert, uh, uphold the use of this statute, this charge against January 6th defendants, but he purported to condition his ruling on acceptance of his view of corruptly. Now, Judge Pan, who was uh, writing the opinion that's denominated opinion for the court, the lead opinion, uh, she said, well, we don't really need to decide what corruptly means because all of the different possible definitions that have been used by courts uh, would be met here because what the defendants did was so obviously corrupt. I mean, I, I mean, they were, it was violent. They were using force. There were assaults on police officers. There were all of the defendants in question here, Garrett Miller, uh, Joseph Fisher, Edward Lang, were accused of multiple felonies in addition to corrupt obstruction of an official proceeding. So to her, it seemed like an easy case. You have all of these, they were using felonious unlawful means to obstruct an official proceeding. So it seemed like an easy case to her. Anyway, so Justice Walker renders this strange ruling and then goes even further and says in a footnote, I think that actually my ruling might be the controlling ruling in this case. Because if you look at a case called Marx versus United States in the Supreme Court, they have in the Supreme Court a policy about what to do in that court when there's a terribly split opinion. And they say that the holding is the position taken by the judge, quote, who concurred in the judgments on the narrowest grounds. And he said, that's what I'm doing. And so my opinion should control. And Judge Pan, who was writing the lead opinion, said, uh, no, uh, you're the only person who defines corruptly this way. Neither I nor Judge Katsis does. And your opinion is not a narrower version of mine. It's, it's, I'm saying any of these three versions of corruptly is met here. And you're saying, no, only one definition of corruptly is possible. So anyway, it's a very strange ruling. You have three, three decisions. I mean, three opinions. One is clearly a dissent. The two others are arguing with each other about who's is controlling. 
And so that was Fisher. And the, uh, the defendants decided not to seek and bank review, I think sort of shrewdly, because they probably realized that, you know, the D.C. circuit and bank is mainly Democratic appointees. It would probably just strengthen Florence Pan's ruling. And so instead, uh, they uh, sought only rehearing of, by this panel uh, that was denied, and then they went directly to the Supreme Court. That's what they're trying to do now. They have filed the cert petition, and the government's supposed to respond next week. So that's where we are with Fisher. Okay, so we have one judge who takes a one judge uh, in, who writes a concurring opinion who takes a much narrower view of the reach of this statute than the Justice Department does. And that judge says that his opinion is the controlling opinion. The lead opinion ends up being a much, a much stronger interpretation of the statute. But is it fair to say that at this point, the Justice Department's interpretation is on shaky ground after Fisher? That's certainly how I feel, yes. I mean, if the Supreme Court takes this case, it's very ominous. Okay, so now we leave Fisher on shaky ground and uh, we, we enter Rob, uh, Robertson, which is the decision that came down last week that you wrote about in, in your article in Lawfare. So this, this case, you said, is focused on mens rea as opposed to actus reus. And so before we get into this, could you describe the distinction between uh, mens rea and actus reus in this context? Yeah, again, uh, the... the Actus reus refers to the conduct, the acts that are that are prohibited, and mens rea ref refers to the state of mind. And, and so this one was always focused on the word corruptly only. It, it did not, this case, uh, Robertson had not uh, raised that issue about whether, you know, he hadn't claimed, oh, I, because I didn't destroy evidence, I'm not covered. He said it's it's the corruptly issue. And incidentally, Robertson was pending uh, when uh, Fisher was decided, which is one reason the other judges didn't want to, to venture into deciding what corruptly meant, because they knew there was another panel focusing on that and where it was being fully briefed. Let's get into Robertson here. So. Robertson um, was at the Capitol. Thomas Robertson was at the Capitol on January 6th. What did he do? Yeah, he was a uh, uh, Rocky Mount, Virginia police officer. Um, he was off duty. And he and a colleague from Rocky Mount, who was also off duty, came into D.C. to attend the Trump rally. And they brought with them some military-style meals ready to eat, gas masks, uh, some water. And uh, he brought, uh, Robertson brought a uh, large wooden stick. Uh, Fracker, I should say, uh, pled guilty before trial and became a witness against Robertson. And Fracker was Robertson's friend, right? The one he came to the Capitol with? That's right. He was sort of... Uh, I guess uh, Robertson was sort of his mentor, probably, and friend. You're, yes, you're right. And so before this, as with a lot of the January 6th defendants, you know, their social media posts are a part of the case against them. So 
Before this, there are a lot of social media posts where Robertson is saying the election was rigged. I, I'm not going to be disenfranchised. And he talks about being ready for, uh, uses the word insurgency, uses the word revolution. So some strong rhetoric in advance suggesting, you know, intent to do something extreme. And then on the day, they go to the uh, uh, rally. From the rally, they begin marching toward the uh, Capitol. Uh, as they get closer, at a certain point, they, they see that um, uh, flashbangs and uh, smoke grenades are going off. They don their gas masks. They continue marching. Uh, then they come across uh, some Metropolitan Police Department civil disturbance unit officers, you know, in riot gear. They're, they're trying to pass through the crowd to get to the building to defend it. And uh, Robertson crosses uh, their path uh, and blocks their path and uh, holds the uh, stick, the big stick, in a horizontal sort of tactical uh, position to block their way. And then he uh, strikes one of the Metropolitan Police officers with the stick, and then he takes a swipe at another one with the stick. So uh, he'll be charged with a, a crime called impeding uh, officers during a civil disorder for that interaction. And then he, they proceed and they uh, get to the uh, scaffolding and they follow other rioters uh, up the breached uh, through the breached scaffolding up the staircase and eventually into the Capitol, penetrating the Capitol at about 2.16 p.m., which is just three minutes after the very first rioter jumps in. That was Michael Sparks, you know, through the window that was smashed by Dominic Pozzola. So they are there early. And according to Fracker, you know, there's broken glass, there is furniture overturned, there's, you know, an alarm blaring, a lot of indicia that they aren't invited and um, they're not supposed to be there. So he is charged with six counts, including f five felonies. Uh, a corrupt obstruction of an official proceeding is number one, and then four other felonies impeding uh, two counts uh, uh, that have to do with bringing the weapon into the Capitol. And then uh, he's also caused, charged with a felony that's unrelated to the obstruction of the Capitol, which is that he destroys the, uh, he's, he's charged with disposing of destroying uh, his phone and Fracker's phone afterwards. That's the situation. He's convicted. And after conviction, he raises this issue that uh, he says uh, the, the jury was not properly instructed. Uh, he actually hadn't objected to this, but it, it doesn't matter because he, he the claim is that there was insufficient evidence because it wasn't proven that he had this intent to obtain an unlawful advantage for himself or an associate. Here's the instruction, the relevant portion of the instruction that was read. And this is the instruction that is normally read in, in January 6th cases over and over. 
To act corruptly, the defendant must use unlawful means or act with unlawful purpose or both. The defendant must also act with consciousness of wrongdoing. Consciousness of wrongdoing means an understanding or awareness that what the person is doing is wrong. And now I'll skip a little bit. And it says, an individual who obstructs or impedes a court proceeding by dot, 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 engaging in other independently unlawful conduct does act corruptly. And he was convicted under that instruction. And that's what most, frankly, January 6th defendants are convicted on uh, under, because usually the ones who are charged with 1512C2 have committed other felonies, assaulting officers, uh, impeding officers, and uh, destroying property. But he, he says, no, you need more than that. You need an intent to obtain an unlawful advantage for himself or an associate. And uh, he, he claims he didn't have that. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Okay, so that that sets us up for the court's ruling last week. Uh, and so in Robertson, as opposed to Fisher, we only get two opinions, a majority and a dissenting opinion. So what did the majority say in Robertson? Yeah. So the majority opinion is writ- written by Judge Pan again. Uh, remember, uh, she did the lead opinion in Fisher. And she is joined by, by the way, by Nina Pillard, or, or maybe Pillard, um, who is... Uh, an Obama appointee in, in its entirety. So, uh, and she says, we can, here's the guts of it, uh, quote, we conclude that corruptly must be construed according to its plain meaning and that there are a range of ways to prove a defendant's corrupt intent or action. We hold that the jury could have found consistent with the district court's instructions that Robertson acted corruptly based on evidence that he used felonious unlawful means to obstruct, impede, or influence the Electoral College vote certification. So that's uh, her ruling. Um, And of course, and and she mentions all the ways in which he acted. He he says, she says, you know, in fact, it's really not a close case because he used force. You know, he was acting wrongfully. He was using force, but there are these other unlawful acts. You know, he struck the MPD officer. He took a swipe at another MPD officer. You know, he committed those other felonies relating to bringing the weapon into the office, into the uh, Capitol. So that's her opinion. So her opinion upholds the uh, the Justice Department's interpretation of the relevant statute, right? Exactly. 
Okay, and then so how does the how does the dissenting opinion uh, depart from Judge Pam's reasoning? The dissenter is Karen uh, LaCraft Henderson, and she is a uh, George H. W. Bush appointee, and she says, in fact, that her, she's bound by Judge Walker's concurrence in Fisher. And that's she takes the position, as Walker hinted that she should, that his was the controlling position. And, and, and he found uh, that there was one and only one way of defining corruptly, and it was to have this intent to obtain an unlawful advantage for himself or an associate. So she says, I'm bound by that. But in addition, I agree with him. And the, so the way that he had arrived at that was he called that the, quote, longstanding, unquote, definition of corruptly. And he quotes a dissenting opinion uh, in, uh, by uh, Justice Thomas in a tax case. And then he does a historical analysis And he says, this is the common law definition of corruptly. Although almost all or possibly all of uh, the cases he talks about are bribery cases, uh, not obstruction cases. So he says, this is the longstanding meaning and it's the only meaning. And uh, in response to that, Judge uh, Pan is sort of uh, scoffing um, that it, this would come as news to at least, you know, five other circuit courts of appeal who have not used that definition in obstruction cases and, and in particular in cases involving 1512C2, this very subsection. You know, to adopt that rule would be to create a circuit split with five other circuits based on nine other rulings. She also says, you know, all of these cases you're talking about are tax and bribery. And, and the, the thing is, corruptly, the meaning of corruptly changes depending on the context, because the point of corruptly, you put it in there in order to try to distinguish innocent behavior from wrongful behavior. And in, depending on what the crime is, exactly what you're talking about may be, may, may be different. In a tax case, you don't want to catch people that inadvertently do something that's uh, not by the book. You know, you want to catch people who do something to obtain an unlawful advantage. Sa- same with bribery. You, you, there's, there's legal ways, reasons you might hand somebody money. But if you're handing an official money in order to get an unlawful benefit, yeah, that's bribery. So uh, she says it it all depends on this. There are other situations where you really don't even need a corruptly. uh, You don't need a mental element because there's no situation where the act itself is so wrongful. You know, nobody, nobody, it's not going to sweep up any innocent conduct. But anyway, that is 
that is how Robertson is is resolved. Okay, so we have we have the dissenting opinion in Robertson relying on the concurring opinion in Fisher. Could you explain how how that happened? Yeah, well, that that it is uh, it is strange, uh, but it, it it goes back to that Judge Judge Walker's invitation in a footnote where he argues that if you follow the reasoning of that Supreme Court case Marx, and I, I forget if it's Marx versus United States or United States versus Marx, but anyway, uh, the Supreme Court does have this rule for its own split decisions about, you know, following the sort of the narrowest way of, of concurring in the judgment. And she agreed with him that, by the way, has never been applied by the D.C. Circuit to its own rulings. But uh, she said, if you that was her interpretation, that if you apply that to the D.C. Circuit's split ruling in Fisher, then the uh, decisive ruling becomes Walker's concurrence. Right. And so so the dissent was relying on Walker's conception of mens rea even though the initial concurrence was actually with the actus reus component of the of the first case, right? Well, yes, because uh, because but Walker sought to, and that was uh, the other odd thing about his ruling is he sought to condition his agreement on the actus reus with acceptance of his view on the mens rea. Right. Okay. So we we discussed a little bit at the top some of the broader implications of uh, the interpretation of this statute. So what would it mean for the Justice Department if its broad interpretation of these twin statutes uh, is struck down, uh, either by another circuit court or by the Supreme Court? So the biggest catastrophe for the DOJ would be if Fisher is overruled or reversed, and Judge Katsas's ruling or Judge Nichols' ruling, that was the original ruling, is adopted. The whole subsection almost vanishes. It becomes just a slightly broader version of the first subsection, which is about evidence destruction, evidence spoliation, evidence uh, fooling around with evidence, tampering. And so in that case, uh, at least 317 cases, uh, January 6th cases, probably you, you have to drop that count or reverse convictions obtained on it because uh, it would be very rare case for them to, uh, these, these cases don't involve, they may have an additional charge of witness tampering like, like there was in, in Robertson, where he threw his phone away. But, you know, storming the Capitol doesn't involve evidence tampering. So um, that would be the biggest disaster. If uh, that one is upheld in some way, and then the Robertson dissent is adopted, uh, and you get either Judge uh, Walker's ruling or Judge Henderson's, then that's an interesting question how damaging that will be. Because actually, although Judge 
Henderson said she was bound by Walker's ruling, the two of them interpreted that corruptly element about with intent to obtain an unlawful advantage for himself or an associate differently. Walker felt that, you know, after all, remember in Fisher what he's doing when he votes with Judge Pan in the majority is that they are restoring counts that had been dismissed. So they are restoring them to indictments, permitting them to go forward. So it must be that Judge Walker thinks that even with this intent, January 6th defendants may have this intent. Why does he think that? His view was that this, uh, here's here's the quote, uh, this case may involve a professional benefit. The defendant's conduct may have been an attempt to help Donald Trump unlawfully secure a professional advantage, the presidency. So, and then he says, like the clerkship that Samuel Vaughn corruptly sought hundreds of years ago, the presidency is a coveted professional position. And what he's referring to there is a 1769 case, a British case that he had just cited a few pages earlier, where um, uh, this guy Vaughn bribed a duke to get a clerkship with the Supreme Court of Jamaica. So what he's saying is, even with the this benefits test, maybe January 6th defendants were trying to get a benefit, if not for themselves, for Trump. I see. Because most people have interpreted benefit to mean financial, professional benefit. There was one case where uh, somebody uh, bribed somebody. He tampered with evidence in order to help a criminal defendant because he wanted to go out with the criminal defendant's daughter. (laughs) And, And that was considered, you know, a benefit. It's not a pecuniary benefit, but it's a benefit. So anyway, Judge Walker thought maybe these, even if you change this corruptly element and require this extra hurdle about advantage, maybe the January 6th defendants could still be convicted. Henderson thought not. She said uh, the unlawful benefit the defendant seeks must be financial, professional, or exculpatory. Acquittal is thus required if, as I view the evidence, Robertson merely intended to protest the outcome of the election or his perceived disenfranchisement or to make some other political point. And then dot, dot, dot. So even if this panel agreed with Judge Walker's suggestion that the officer, that the office of the president may qualify as, quote, a professional benefit, unquote, we would remain free to conclude that there was no evidence presented at trial to show that Robertson intended, either alone or collectively, to procure that benefit. Uh, I don't know about that. That seems like, I mean, there was evidence he was there. The whole reason he was there was that he thought the election was rigged. And I mean, you know, they were disrupting an electoral count ostensibly to keep Trump in power. But uh, anyway, she felt that wasn't adequately proven with Robertson. So 
it's a it's blurry. Um, and and I should say also that Katzis, even though he did not agree that this was the definition of corruptly, he did offer his view that this would not reach the January. If this were what corruptly meant, uh, it would not be met by the January 6th defendants. So uh, that is uh, an open question. It's another mess. But uh, I think that if uh, the Robertson case is overturned and uh, this personal benefits test is adopted, it could very likely be also very catastrophic for the Justice Department vis-a-vis the January 6th cases. It's a, it's a harder call still when you get to Trump himself. Is somebody really going to argue that getting the president, getting the presidency for Trump is not a personal benefit? Uh, that seems like a real stretch. It's, it's financial. It's professional. It's, it's, you know, staying out of jail. It's, it's so many things. Uh, but, uh, I, I just don't know how they will interpret it. So we've established that both Fisher and Robertson suggest that 1512 C2 is on shaky legal ground. If that's the case, and if this was kind of predictable, uh, by the Justice Department, why did the Justice Department decide to go with this statute as the statute of choice for charging the rioters? I don't know that it was predictable, but here's a few things. 1512 C2 is uh, a 20-year maximum felony, so it's a very serious felony. If you begin looking for, well, what is it they're guilty of if not this? You know, you yes, there are the the crimes that they you know the the other crimes that, that I mentioned assault of police officers, impeding police officers. You know, it it doesn't get to the gist of what they were doing, the seriousness of what they were doing. Um, I mean, it's a terribly serious thing to assault a police officer, but it, it, they were doing it in order to you know disrupt this uh, joint session of Congress and prevent the peaceful transfer of power. There's another felony called 1512D, which has to do with harassing people to prevent them from attending a congressional, I mean, an official proceeding. But it's, you know, that's not really what we're talking about either. And that's only a three-year felony. If you're talking about just, you know, entering the Capitol, that's a misdemeanor without violence. And and some of the other uh, crimes, rioting and whatever, those are state law crimes. Those aren't federal crimes. So that's one reason. The other is that, I, you know, I don't think it was obvious that there were so many problems with this. It, it wasn't obvious to the district judges who first grappled with this. You know, we had 15, it's only Judge Nichols. Uh, I don't know if at this point, maybe another judge agree- has agreed with him. The last I checked, it was only Judge Nichols and 15 others had, you know, read it the way the Justice Department did. Um, and that included a lot of uh, Trump appointees, Judge uh, Dabney Friedrich, Judge uh, McFadden, Judge uh, Tim Kelly, you know, so this was bipartisan. 
and then lots of other Republican appointees, you know, Royce Lambert, uh, not Trump appointees, but other Republicans. So it seemed like a bipartisan consensus thing. It's reading. It, it is the simplest reading. You you really have to do some gymnastics to read away subsection two uh, the way uh, Nichols did uh, and Katzis did. So I think it's a combination of those things. There's, it's not like there's a lot of other alternatives, and uh, it didn't look as fragile as it now does. And yeah, on appeal, because like I say, you know, you had this, it was bipartisan at the district court level. At the appeals level, it has so far been 100% partisan, uh, or at least, you know, only the two Democratic judges have wholeheartedly endorsed what the DOJ did. All three of the Republican appointees have had either serious qualms like Justin Walker, or they've rejected what the government did altogether like uh, Henderson and Katz's. And that's a, you know, ominous development if this goes any higher. Yeah, so you wrote an article for Lawfare in December of last year in which you expressed optimism about the use of this statute for January 6th prosecutions. But in this article and in our conversation, um, you've struck a, a less optimistic tone. So what changed over the last 10 months? Yeah, it's it's just the way that suddenly at the appeals level, this is a much more partisan issue than it was at the district court level, uh, you know, and we all know what the numbers are on the Supreme Court, and, and that's the next rung. So if there's another rung, so uh, I, I think it looks very fragile. And I think that that Fisher ruling with you have three different opinions and two of the judges can't agree on whose is controlling and this is the ruling that at the moment allows the government to go forward with two of the counts against an ex-president and the you know a current major presidential candidate i think that even without a conventional circuit split this is something that the supreme court might feel it had to resolve plus plus the fact that you have you know, more than 300 criminal uh, cases arising out of January 6th that uh, are also in the balance here. So you've mentioned that two of the four counts against former President Trump in the January 6th case rely on 1512 C2 and its twin statute. What would a narrower interpretation of these statutes mean for the Justice Department in, in its case against Trump? If well, if Fisher's overturned, those counts, I think, are thrown out. Uh, I don't think you can convert uh, what happened into evidence tampering. I, I, I'm, I'm speaking a little on the fly. I would have. I'm, I'm remembering the indictment. Uh, I don't know if there's some subcategories. You know. That's certainly not the gist of what it was about. I don't know if some things could be characterized that way. 
in a pinch. But I think those would be dismissed. And then with Robertson, like I say, you would have to ask it. I think there's a better case with Robertson, if it's only Robertson, um, to say that, okay, uh, Trump had an intent to obtain an unlawful benefit by stealing the election and becoming president again. I think that's, I think that one survives. Okay, Roger. Well, thank you very much for your helpful piece on lawfare and for this useful conversation. Uh, We will leave it there. Thank you very much, Matt. It's been a pleasure. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare podcasts by becoming a Lawfare Material supporter through our website, lawfaremedia.org support. You'll also get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. Please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Look out for our other podcasts, including Rational Security, Chatter, Allies, and The Aftermath our latest Lawfare Presents podcast series on the government's response to January 6th. Check out our written work at lawfaremedia.org. The podcast is edited by Jen Patya Howell, and your audio engineer this episode was Kara Schillen of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thanks for listening. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.